This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. This is your host, Darren Hood. Thank you, everyone, for taking the time to join us on today. And as always, a special welcome to those of you who are joining us and tuning in for the very first time. We are continuing with the anniversary celebration. Yes, the the World of UX podcast has now been available for two years. We've been producing two years worth of shows. I'm excited to be able to share with the UX community. And most importantly, I'm so very happy to have people who have voices that I know need to be heard in our community, people who bring value, people who know what they're talking about. What a novel idea. (laughs) People who are not just talking because they want to hear themselves, uh, but people who please pay attention. The people we're bringing on the show here are great. They are skilled. They are knowledgeable. The things they share are gold. And so I want everybody to Really, I'm, I'm excited to be able to present these people, and I hope that you enjoy them as well. Today, we're going to be flying solo with one of our guests over the course of these two years. Karen Lynn is joining me on the podcast today. Welcome, Karen. Glad that you're able to join me on today. So so great to be back. Thank you so much, Sharon. Absolutely. And some of you don't know who Karen is, so we're going to have her do her standard intro, and then we're going to dive in and just talk about whatever. So, Karen, go ahead and introduce yourself to the to the crowd today. Yeah, thank you. Um, So I do I have a standard intro? Um, Okay, I'll just give a quick one. (laughs) Um, So I've been in the digital space um, for quite some time. Um, Self-taught HTML in 1996, kind of went through the whole exploring, um, you know, the Web as it was developing and um, and was really fortunate to study human factors uh, when I went to college and then went straight into uh, UX consulting. Um, so I did that for, I think it's been over 15 years now or so. Um, and I've worked all sorts of industries, projects. I've been in-house um, internal consulting, external consulting, Worked for startups, worked with nonprofits, government, um, lots of financial services, and um, and uh, I would say like my focus now. Um, I did just join a bank recently, um, but my focus is still working with uh, startups um, in their seed and growth stages to make sure that you know as as they are getting traction with their MVP that they're able to scale their product market fit using user-centered and human-centered design processes and, um, you know, and make sure that their internal team, their design process is also scaling to, you know, cross quote unquote, across the chasm. Yes. Yes. I love that. Absolutely love that. And you know what? Thank you for that intro. I've got something just came to mind and I don't think we got to talk about this a lot before Mm -hmm. us. I know it's, it's near and dear to your heart. Please talk to the people today about what you call UX erasure. 
so that people can know what that is. Go ahead, let them have it. Don't hold back. <laughs> oh man, where do I start? Um, well, you know, so so I wrote a piece on Medium called um, "Not Another UX Designer," mm-hmm. um, which for some reason recently has, seems to have been getting some traction, um, and. Um, part of the feedback that I've heard from that article was, you know, that this helped put into perspective what people were facing at work mm-hmm. as a UX designer, right? So, so and, you know, if you can imagine, you know, a lot of people do get into user experience because, you know, they are empathetic people, you know, they've, you know, seen the impact of bad design and they feel motivated to want to do something about it yes, and actually, yes. you know, create better and better products for everybody. Right. So, so can you, like, you can imagine a lot of people are coming into the space, um, you know, for very good, honorable, (laughs) respectable reasons. Um, and when they, you know, get into their first job or, you know, they may, you know, even be at a company for a while or in an industry for a while and they feel like they keep hitting the same wall over and over again in their Mm -hmm. organizations and, and, um, so there, I think of it as like, there's sort of two reasons for it, right? Like one is that, you know, a big part of our job as UX professionals is to advocate, right? For the value of our work, right? And, and, and to advocate for why we need to um, center the user, the end user, or whoever, you know, the human actor is in a system. Um, And, um, that, you know, that's part of the job, but I think it's something that, um, you know, isn't taught, right? Like, you, right. you don't, they're right. not taught, you know, most, um, most programs don't talk about this, right? Like they don't talk about, um, or they don't, you know, teach or coach um, skills around how do you do that, right? And, um, and also not all companies with UX teams um, not all managers, UX managers do a good job of this, right? So, and that's where, you know, there are absolutely are downstream effects of all of that, right? And so I, I would say like, that's the main reason for um, why a lot of people feel like they keep hitting this wall over and over again. Um, there, The second reason, which I attribute to this concept around, you know, UX erasure is that, um, you know, you know, for, for better or worse, maybe depending on how you look at it, um, at, at a global level now, like we've entered an age of economics where, um, where capital like wins, right? Like whoever has the most power capital uh, can deliver the most shareholder value, right? You know, like these are the companies um, that win in today's marketplace. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not by any accident why, you know, so many, you know, why we have this concept of big tech now, right? Like technology used to be um, small or, you know, kind of more grassroots organic in the sense of like, you know, they didn't, no single technology company really had like this mass concentration of power and influence like they do now today. 
right? And um, and we've seen this happen in different industries, right? Like we saw, like this has happened. This happened with like the industrial revolution, um, you know, ag- in the agriculture industry, right? Like when small family farms, you know, just kept consolidating, consolidating to you know big um, big farms and big ag, right? Um, and how that's changed and influenced our day-to-day lives like what we eat right the choices of food that we have right um has all been impacted by that and i think we're seeing the same thing happening with the tech industry now um and um so you know does it really matter nowadays um that we are building products and services that serve end users um, the answer very well could be no. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and I think now that's sort of, this is sort of the second layer of issues that we're running into now in terms of why, you know, when we feel like we're coming into an organization or company, like, oh, we're here to champion the end user. Right. But then it feels like there's these invisible forces at play that are keeping us from doing that, keeping us from <laughs> doing a good job of that. Yeah. And, um, and um, unfortunately, yeah, there some of these forces, I would say, um, is bigger than, you know, you and I <laughs> individually, yeah. right? Um, and more difficult to navigate. But, um, but I think, you know, it definitely starts with speaking up about it, right? You know, connecting with other folks in the industry saying like, hey, like, you know, I'm seeing these things happen in my company, you know, are you seeing similar things happening in your, you know, your company, right? And um, <clears throat> and I, I do think there are more and more people um, speaking up and speaking out. And it also, you know, there's not a coincidence either that it coincides with uh, more and more whistleblowers, right, coming out of these yeah. tech companies and saying like, hey, like, we know this is wrong. Like, we know the use, you know, the way AI, for example, is being used is having inequitable outcomes, right? And, and you know, these companies are choosing to, you know, gloss over it or try to bury, you know, um, bury the information, right? Bury what we know about it. Um, so, I mean, that that's definitely part of it. And I think um, UX, you know, there, there's, a, there's squeezes happening from, <laughs> Um, from different sides as well, right? So from um, designers even, right? Like um, from the designer camp, from the product manager camp, um, and um, sometimes from, you know, companies where their culture, their product culture is very technology centered. So it's all about, okay, like, you know, we need to figure out, um, let's build what we can versus what we should be building, (laughs) right? Um, You know, because we can, right? Like literally because we can, right? right? Um, So, um, you know, when I I mentor for folks in, um, you know, trying to get into UX or, you know, starting out in UX, um, I, I tell them like, you have to also really look at like, well, what is the business model of the company you're working for? And, um, is, is who you're designing for, is that really, um, the audience that is actually being prioritized by the company from a money-making standpoint, right? 
So, so for example, like, um, I forget where this conversation came up, but somebody had asked like, well, why is Amazon's website like a much worse user experience and use, you know, (laughs) from a usability perspective compared to their mobile app? And I was like, well, you know, because you also have to recognize that Amazon's number one customer is not, you know, is the vendors, right? They're optimizing their website Mm -hmm. experience Mm -hmm. to make sure that you as the end user, as a consumer user or audience um, are clicking around as much as possible to give exposure, as much exposure as possible to their like thousands and thousands of vendors, right? For this one particular product (laughs) that you're like, I don't need like (laughs) to know every possible like hundred variations of this thing. Right. Like prices and everything. Right. But, um, but they're going to try to push that on you. Right. Because that's how, you know, again, that's, they have their business models. There are ways to try to optimize, you know, oh, now, now they have a reason, for example, to sell sponsored um, spots to these vendors, right. Mm -hmm. At a premium. So, um, so generally I tell people, you know, and this is true, I think of UX, but also of any system, right. As we experience or part of any system, whenever we see something happen and we're like, that doesn't make sense. Why? (laughs) Like, we're like, how could, how could this, I don't know, I don't know. It could be like a traffic light or something, right? Like you could be out driving or, and then something terrible happens or an accident happens. You're like, but like, this could be easily fixed, right? Well, how, why hasn't it been fixed? And typically, you know, I mean, to me, there's always a reason, right? Like, and, and that reason typically has to do with, well, like if you follow the money, you'll find the reason. Yeah. Yep. (laughs) And, um, and so what, what I also try to do in my own work um, in part of advocating for UX is, well, figure out what is that ROI of your work, right, of this work? Why do we need to do this, right? And, and, I, and I do tell, you know, um, uh, designers that I work with um, on my team, I said, look, it is possible to over-design just as just as it's possible to over-engineer, right? Um, And and likewise, it's possible to over-research something, right? So, but if you're not clear on what is the business value or the potential business value that is to to be derived from the work and effort you're putting into something, like that's a huge risk, right? That you can end up spending too much time, too much resources trying to build something or do something that just doesn't have the business reason or the business rationale to do it. Um, On the flip side though, if you're not clear, if you're not doing something just because you're not clear, right? What the business value is, then that's where the work is, right? Like you, it's, the work is to get clear on what is the business value. Yeah. And I yeah. think that's something a lot of folks um, don't realize, right? That is, that will become, if it's not part of your job now, right? Because you're just starting out as a UX person, um, it will become part of your job. Um, and it should become part of your job as you get better and better at what you do. And if you're a junior person or even like middle, maybe senior, and you're feeling like, you know, there are these forces at play, chances are it's because someone above you is not doing that work, right? So, um, 
and then that's where it gets a little bit more tricky, right? Because then it's up to each individual, like, okay, well, what do you want to do to, you know, try to help your manager, help your boss articulate that um, ROI better, um, you know, build that business case and, and rationale for it. So mm-hmm. sorry, this like super long-winded way. Oh, no, but that's okay. <laughs> that, that, that's fantastic. <laughs> I love how you broke that down. I was just having a conversation with somebody recently and was talking about how much of UX is actually doing what we traditionally think of as UX work. It's, it's not, I don't think it's as high as people think it is. And, and with all the discussions lately, I mean, people were freaking out because, oh, Figma, Figma did some updates and we're, we're not happy about these updates. Well, guess what? It's just a tool. Who cares? The <laughs> Figma, do you remember iRise? Yes. iRise was like the big dog and one of the biggest, I mean, they just came on the scene, blew people away, mainly because yeah. you could import live data into your prototypes and really make it completely realistic, whatever it is that you were rolling mm-hmm. out. What people didn't know about iRise before they finally died, because for those of you who don't know, iRise pretty much no longer exists. I don't think it exists at all. I, I don't know what happened <laughs> to them. I just, yeah, I remember they had like a very short-lived. Um, they did. They kinda, got, yeah. They got full of themselves really fast. Uh-huh. It cost six figures to implement iRise in your, right. in your institution because you had to get the iRise server. You could not do design Uh-oh. work and then just render it in a browser. You had to have the iRise server. So that was $100,000 Wow! to do that. So then the next thing you know, two, three years after iRise got big, uh, Axure came on the scene. And so, and mm-hmm. I jokingly mentioned, I know this happened, hmm, $110,000 or $450. Hmm, <laughs> which one am I going to so iRise priced themselves out of the market, then they tried, then they ended up being responsive and they came up with another version that you could start to do designs and roll them out in your browser. But by that time, then Sketch came along and and then a lot of other tools started popping up and iRise, right shortly after iRise got full of themselves and started putting Mm -hmm. their stickers, they, they became a NASCAR sponsor. Uh, there wasn't really, too, yeah, it wasn't too much longer after that, that they just died. And so I, I was doing a talk with some folks overseas, uh, this past week talking to their team and was talking about, don't get caught up in the tool because mm-hmm. UX is not the tool. Figma is not <laughs> UX. XD is not UX. Uh, Envision yeah. is not UX. You name the tool, Marvel, Zeppelin, you name the tool. That's not UX. It's an extension of what we do. And so, and I began to talk a little bit more about the fact that how much, everything that you just said, can you tie your work back to business value? How are you representing what you do to people, to stakeholders? And how much are you speaking their language versus UX language? And, you know, Mm -hmm. this, this translation that we need to become good at doing. And when you, when the dust settles, I just throw a random number out there because I haven't tried to calculate it, nor have I talked to people about it, but I know I've been doing it long enough to to have an idea. I'd almost off the top of my head venture to say that at least our work is at least 60, 50 to 60% actual UX work producing deliverables and the other 50% and it sways is negotiation, uh, sales, 
uh, other things that people don't associate with UX, but it mm-hmm. is part of the work. And, 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 and just like other disciplines, other yeah. disciplines is do X amount of whatever your discipline is about and then spend X amount of time negotiating with people and communicating right. and collaborating. And so that's what we do. So I, I, it, it's an interesting day. Uh, another thing you mentioned made me think about what I call UX hamster work. There are some people that are so busy just yeah. running in, in like a like a hamster running in a wheel, and then when they right. get off the wheel, you're in the exact same spot you were when you started running. You have really have not made any any progress, and so and that again ties back to the other thing I thought about when you were saying that UX maturity levels that it is a practically ignored factor, even though some people talk about it and they have UX maturity level models that are out there. Well, that doesn't, you don't get to look at those things and just go back and then the maturity level just takes care (laughs) of itself. There has to be somebody who's the keeper of the cheese that's keeping their eyes on that thing and deliberately trying to mature your organization. It takes work because some companies were great. There were one nameless company was like UX heaven at one time. And I used to love using their product. And I'll throw a little hint out there at tax time. What a great product it was. And then all of a sudden, they this company appointed, they, they did what a lot of companies do, and it's something else I thought we might get into a little bit. UX, you mentioned something about UX leadership there and what how managers are not doing certain things. And at this particular company, that was great. And I knew someone who worked there, and they talked about how great it was. Somebody had the grand idea to bring in an architect, not a UX architect, not an information architect, a, an architect, a person who did, who worked on buildings to run the UX operation. This was when, it, 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 at one time, they, they pretty much had folks in UX reporting to somebody else that wasn't a UXer, and that was the way that it started because they didn't have people who had the maturity or the experience to run the, the UX departments. Today, because it's funny, that happened about seven, eight years ago or so, r- roughly. Today, the vast majority of UX departments that I know about are run by people who are not UXers, do not value UX, do not understand UX, and have zero capability of relating to a well-informed UX professional that's working on their teams. And so when those things happen, you don't have a lot of hope. I got to tell, throw this story in there too. There was, I, I applied for a UX manager job at a company once. And I got a rejection notice. You, ne- This never happens. I got a rejection notice about two hours after I applied. I'm going, how in the world could that have happened that fast in any company? But they didn't, something about me, they didn't like what they saw, and they rejected me immediately. The one thing I did do, I didn't fill out their whole application. I'm like, we're going to talk about this anyway, and I'm uploading my resume. So I'm not going to fill out. I'm going to put in a few, a little bit of my job history and we'll talk later when you realize that I've got X number of years and things of that nature. If you feel that I, I mean, because I already knew that I matched the job responsibilities. The funny thing was I got, I got the rejection letter. Like it was almost like I put it in and it came right back out that I was rejected. It immediately. Bounced. <laughs> yeah, it just bounced. Here's the part that got me, Karen. The next morning I got an email from their recruiting department. It wasn't, hmm. it wasn't a repeat. It wasn't asking me about some, uh, some other position. It wasn't anything that would qualify as due diligence 
in anybody's book, it was a it was <laughs> an invitation to apply for a sales associate position. And this time I'm going to say the company it was Bed Bath and Beyond. They I couldn't get uh, with all the experience I have in UX, I couldn't qualify for a manager's job, but I could qualify to be a part time sales associate on your floor selling pillows. And I, I wrote them back. I let them know how insulting what? and out of place that was. I, I lost respect for Bed Bath & Beyond. And, and companies don't realize oh, that wow. when they don't handle yeah. their recruiting, they are, they are generating detrimental impact for their brand when they do things like that. <laughs> and, and the reason is because that's not part of their UX strategy. Yep or CX strategy, yep. right? They're not, you know, <laughs> um, no one's looking at it from that perspective, right? There is no accountability yep. to look at it That's the from word. that perspective. Yep, no yep. accountability, no strategy. Yep. Nobody has vision at all. Uh, leadership is is wanting. Leadership isn't leadership. They're, people are occupying seats. They're not fulfilling roles. Mm-hmm. And, and then the company suffers and then that trickles downhill and eventually the customers or the users suffer and people are happy because they got the jobs and they got their check. Right. But nobody's paying attention to what's really transpiring. Yeah. So. I mean, and, and going back to what you were saying about like, why is there so much focus on tools? Um, I feel like the only thing I can think of um that would explain for that kind of mindset and mentality is, uh, is that because design at that organization is actually being treated and valued as production work. Yes. Right. And I mean, nothing against doing production work, right. 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 Um, because you know, that is important work. Um, but the risk to the company and the people doing production level work is your disposable, yes. right? And and the work <laughs> is being treated as disposable, right? Yep. And um, yeah, and, and, and it's it, it becomes that hamster wheel experience that you were talking about for, <laughs> for people in it, right? Because then they're like, oh my gosh, I have to like burn all these hours getting, you know, this work done, you know, and, and then, and then what? And then only to be told then, oh, there's new requirements now or the requirements have changed, yeah. right? And then like, what, I have to do this again now? And it's like, yes, because that is, <laughs> you are in production purgatory, basically. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, but that does speak to, you know, the maturity of, of UX, um, um, at a particular company. And, and I've also like thought about how, um, you know, there, there's so much talk about, oh, you know, um, companies with, you know, strong design teams or strong design culture and like, you know, human centered design, right. Um, they outperform, <laughs> they outperform other companies that don't. Mm-hmm. Right. And then so there, there seems to be this, um, you know, mad dash for like, oh, like, let's, you know, hire these roles with all these titles. Right. <laughs> so that it looks like, yeah. you know what I mean? So because, you know, I, I presume the thinking is and I mean, I actually also have um, 
worked with founders where, you know, they hired UX designers thinking like, oh yeah, this person's going to solve, <laughs> solve our problems. Right. Um, but, but in reality, they're not really either, um, um, have the, the skill and experience to do so, or they're not, um, really allowed to do their work. Yes. Right. So, yes. um, <laughs> yeah, it becomes like this, um, you know, like with UX, my, my concern is like anytime there is, you know, some article or piece that comes out that says like, oh, here are the five, you know, UX maturity levels or here are the six, whatever, right? Like, is that people look at that and they say like, oh, okay, well, let's make sure we have like, or we're, treat it like a checklist. Yes. And let's go through and make sure we have each piece of the puzzle Right. But they don't recognize that it's not like these um, assessments. Right. They're they're not really um, they're not they're not intended to be prescriptive. Right. It's more like you're if you're doing things right, then, you know, you will see these you yes. know characteristics or traits, these five traits. Right. Of highly performing companies happen to have these things, but not because they have these things is because you know, all these other things are, they're doing all these other things, right. That they, they express in a certain way, right. Right. Or exhibit these behaviors. Those are actually, you know, the lagging indicators, if you will, of a successful company, but then, you know, people only ever see that, you know, sort of what's expressed outwardly. And then they start to copy, they think by copying and mimicking that, that that will make them internally the same, but it's not right. Like that's just not (laughs) I don't know. I don't think that's how anything works. Right. Like, I mean, it is like, yeah. I mean, I'm trying to think of like what in life, like if you see someone who is well-dressed walking down the street, do you say to yourself, Oh, let me get that exact, you know, (laughs) pair of shoes and the exact belt and hat. And then let me, you know, I don't know, try to find it at the cheapest store and then like, you know, put that on and then that will make me fashionable, like yes. a fashion icon. No, like, cause that's not how that works. Right. Exactly. So, yes, yes. Um, but that's what it feels like is happening in our, in our industry. Right it, now. It's a, it's a copycat world and, mm-hmm. and people, and, and it's a world who I, 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 I use the term microwavable to describe it a lot <laughs> that, that people think that you see what somebody else did and you just want to microwave your way to the mm. same point that that company or individual is. And, and it just doesn't work that way. I remember go, sitting in a meeting once looking at a UX maturity model and Leah Bewley, and I got to mention her name because some people have seen it and love um, Leah Bewley. But when she did this, you know, some of these design companies are always trying to make themselves more relevant than they really are because they somebody has told them that that's going to translate into X number of dollars. So that's why you have Adobe doing what they're doing, even though they're always using the acronym UXUI and detrimentally impacting wow. the discipline and people believing that that's a thing because Adobe said it. Uh, and then you, and so Envision. Well, of course they would say that, though, because yeah. they... their product that they're selling is a production tool. So yes, they're going (laughs) to, of course they want that. Right. That's a great point. We're we're (laughs) in this meeting and we're watching Leah Bewley's presentation with Envision with her maturity model. It is the only UX maturity model that I have ever seen in my career. And I've seen a lot of them. I've created one by 
I've seen a lot of them. It was the only one I've ever seen that did not have a stair step component to it. I mean, you could at least look at Jacob Nielsen's. You could look at a lot, a lot of the other ones. Okay, we're starting here, and if we do certain things, that's the way I took it. I, I took it as a challenge to practicality instead of, oh, we're here. Okay, drop the microphone. We're done. Leah Bewley's just like, okay, look at this and see where you are, and that's it. You don't have to do anything to try to ascend from one level to another. You don't have to do anything to maintain it. You just are where you are on this list that she created. And it was like the it was like the participation trophy of UX maturity models. You know, whereas when I was a kid, it was when they just started where when you played Little League, everybody got something. You you could lose the game 18 to nothing, but you're still going to get ice cream afterwards. Uh, that, that started happening just as I was coming through Little League, and I was an all-star Little League baseball player, but if we lost, we were mad, you know, but, but it just started to change after that. But uh, not too long before that, oh, if you didn't do well, oh, you're running laps. You're, <laughs> you're getting punished. You're doing push-ups. You're doing something, and everything changed so we get to this this participation trophy mentality because nobody wants to feel bad and, and they don't want to make anybody feel bad. And lost in that is the reality that actually helps people to ascend and be better. So yeah. I'm looking at this thing and then we get out of the meeting and one person said, yeah, I'm looking at it going, this is flawed. Some other people are looking at this and going, yeah, we're right there. Even though the UX team was only a, like two years old, and now you're automatically at some high level where you, you, you can basically spare, spell UX and the people in the company don't want anything to do with UX and people are running in the meetings showing you designs uh, that they did in, paint, in Microsoft Paint and trying to, get, trying to commandeer and take the design away from you and, and you think that we're high on this UX material. It's, it, it's, it's really sad that, that how this microwavable mentality and this participation trophy mentality how they sort of become interwoven into the way that we do things and it's they're all I, I love the book I don't know if you've seen this book uh the death of expertise it is an earth-shattering book um to see how ignorance is being celebrated mm-hmm. and excellence is going out the window matter of fact if you stand up for excellence you're probably going to get trolled and uh pursued uh, I, I've been trolled as far as people not liking something I said on social media, f- going out of their way to find my work email address and flaming me at work. Uh, but, you know, if, if you didn't have to just, you could move on to the next post. <laughs> so this wild, wild stuff. Yeah. Do you, you know, as you were talking, I, it was, it reminded me of um, how I sometimes feel like I'm the person in that story. You know, the, the emperor has no clothes. Right, like, do you ever feel like you're the one person who is like pointing out, exactly? You know, like, wait, but why are we all? Why is everyone like the emperor has clothes when he clearly does not? And like, what is going on here, right? And then, and then just constantly feeling like, um, you know, I'm I'm in a position where I have to be the person to deliver inconvenient truths. Yes. And, um, 
but you know, I, I think, you know, that's, that's my learning, right? I feel like that's my um, opportunity for growth now is like how to deliver inconvenient truths in a way <laughs> that, um, you know, people can are and are willing to accept as opposed to immediately reject and deny and, you know, gaslight or, or troll. (laughs) And, um, yeah, I, but, but yeah, but I think that just means that, you know, when you, when you get to a certain level in your work, right. And a certain level of expertise, um, yeah, maybe that's what's related to that book, the, the, the death of expertise, but, um, maybe that's what the work becomes, right? Like how to communicate it in a way that, um, you know, people who don't have that level of expertise can understand. It's like, you know, it's like how people say like, um, I mean, I had a terrible time in college, like learning calculus. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) I basically like failed it twice, but you know, was part of, I had to, you know, I had to take it um, to get my degree. But you know how they say like, you know, professors, right? Often, oftentimes are not good teachers because they're such experts in their material. They forgot what it's like for someone who's totally new or like has no prior point of reference, right? How do you bring them from point A to point Z when you're already at Z and you don't remember what it was like to be at point A, right? So so I think, you know, you know, again, I haven't read the book, The Death of Expertise, but I can kind of see how it's also our own fault in a way, right? That we're, you know, that we're not doing more or able to communicate our expertise in a way that um, helps people. Um, again, you know, this is sort of like, I call it like the user experience of user experience, yes. right? Yes. <laughs> like, how do you help people meet people where they're at now, right? And then kind of bring them along step by step, you know, instead of, you know, um, uh, how people might perceive us as being in our like ivory tower or whatever, being all like, well, you're not doing it right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Funny, thing you so. should, funny thing you should mention that. When I was in instructional design, one of the things that they that they taught us was that the worst person you could ever have teach something is somebody who's an expert in it. Mm. They said that we're instructional designers and we know how the science of instruction works. So anybody could teach it, but unless the person that's teaching it actually understands instructional de- uh, design, it's actually best that they don't do it because they lack the empathy. Mm. And so when, when they present something, the, the person who is a subject matter expert but doesn't understand instructional design, when they try to convey something and people don't get it, they just lose it completely. Mm-hmm. And they become hard to deal with. They be, they're very insensitive. Uh, they're not caring. They're not nurturing. Any of those things, all those things that, that are birthed out of, of empathy. And, and so, yeah, they, they, I always remembered that. Make sure. And then then as I transitioned into UX, I never forgot that. And, okay, now I'm the subject matter expert that's also, I happen to be skilled in instructional design also. So make sure that you understand that the people you're teaching, you used to be them. Right. And I've had to tell people that sometime. In fact, recently somebody said, Darren, you got to know they don't know. Okay, are you telling me that I 
don't know that they don't know. I know that they don't know, but we're going to have to establish it. And, and this is what I do. You have to mm-hmm. establish a starting point. Okay. Mm-hmm. A person is going down the wrong street. Where are they exactly? And, and where are they when it comes to self-awareness? Where are they with regard to how introspective they are concerning their career, their status in the discipline? I have to find out. And, and some of those conversations mm-hmm. do start out tough because you, they have, sometimes you just have to say, hey, I, I know you've been saying the sky is purple, but the sky is actually blue. And, and we're going to have to have a discussion about that and because it's a two-way street. We have to, those of us that are bringing people up, we have to empathize with them, but they also have to be honest. And and there's a, a, a huge school of entitlement out there. Uh, the emperor's new clothes, I love that metaphor because you're naked. You are, as some of us would say, butt naked. <laughs> and, and you're going to have to realize that. I don't know how you're looking in the mirror and not seeing that you're butt naked. You are, you are completely in your birthday suit here. <laughs> and until I have found... Until a person, if, if I can't get a person, just make basic statements. And if a person cannot, that's the negotiation. If the person can accept truth and sort of dismiss that the statement, they got to come to the realization that the things we're saying are not personal. Anybody who doesn't achieve that point of realization, I can't do anything for them because I'm, I'm not going to coddle you. I'm not going to do because that's counterproductive. That you, it'll take us ten months to get somewhere that it should have taken us five days, and and I don't have ten months because <laughs> you're talking about me taking time out of my schedule and I have things to do. So and so does everybody else. So people have to they got to grow up. Yeah, and, and they've got they've got to be an adult about this thing, and that's why I love about the andragogical aspect of learning, where we're 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 not talking to kids. Mm-hmm. When we're trying to convey things about UX, we're talking to adults. So that andragogical, which is different than pedagogical, and that pedagogy has to do with the structuring of the curriculums, but andragogy has to do with adult learning principles. So that means we have to establish relevance. We have to understand, like you said, meet them where they are. Show what the, the show how beneficial this is. Show them the consequences associated with things. If you choose to ignore these facts. This is the risk you're running and trying to convey that to them. If they don't, I, I can't do anything. I can't do anything. Yeah, that's for on them. them. That's on them. Yep. And, that, and that's perfectly fine, too. I mean, like when I get, engage people in these conversations, you know, I just say, like, look, you know, th- this is this is the truth, right? These are the risks, right? If you're willing to accept the risks, Right. You know, that's, that's ultimately your choice, right? You know? Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, yeah. Um, the expertise, um, that we try to bring in our work, and we were talking about this earlier, right before the recording started, right? It's like, does it feel like sometimes, um, you know, the, um, the need is the need there for this level of expertise, right? In every organization, you know, potentially, yes. I think we see the potential of every yeah. organization and company yeah. to have that level of UX maturity and like what, you know, what is possible, right? What that means, not only for, 
you know, end users and consumers of products and services. But like for me, it's it's a reflection of society. It is. Right. That when when we yeah. can incorporate in our decision making, um, you know, not not just empathy in the sense of like, oh, like we thought about. Right. Or we imagined in our minds right, what the impact might be. I mean, like empathy, like um, empathy with rigor, I guess. Right. Like you you do the work of like, no, we did the research. Right. We know for a fact that this is actually helping people um, or, you know, or it's hurting people potentially. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also don't, I, but the research piece also needs to be done with rigor. Right? That's, yes. that's the other thing that I'm seeing is that, is that, you know, a lot of uh, teams <laughs> are saying they do user research, but when I look at <laughs> when I say, okay, tell me, like, give me all your past, you know, research, like, how did you do it? And I'm looking at it and I'm like, this is not at a level, like this is at a level of rigor where um, it's shallow. And when it's shallow, it's dangerous. Yeah, it's more like rigor mortis. <laughs> <laughs> it, well, it, it's a board. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the thing about research is that when you do shallower research or where you, when you do research in a way that lacks rigor, um, it becomes dangerous because the chances of you walking away from that research, drawing the wrong conclusions off the charts. Oh my goodness. Like you may as well flip a coin, right? (laughs) Um, as opposed to double down in the wrong direction. Yep. And and I see this, unfortunately, I see this happening like way more than it could and should really, um, or needs to, right? Um, Big time. But again, like, you know, I feel like that's, that's the gap. Like, how do we fill that gap of, um, you know, as experts, as, you know, experienced industry veterans how do we help people see like you know because they think they're doing the right thing they're like no but we're doing everything that we're supposed to be doing like we did the research checkbox right we did the usability testing checkbox um but they're not seeing that the way they're doing it actually matters more than whether or not you're doing it really you know it's 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 kind of like i think of how um you know we have a food culture in the u.s which is you know hyper like oh, this is the next superfood, right? Like you need to eat blueberries because they're high in antioxidants or whatever, right? Like, and then so um, you would think then what you're supposed to do is go out and like stuff yourself with blueberries. However, (laughs) I would um, contest that it's not necessarily the what you should be doing. It's the how you do it that actually matters more than the what. Yes. Right. And, and if you're, the way you're doing it is totally wrong (laughs) and not at all, or like, let's say like, I think, you know, let's take, you know, just using, go with me on the blueberry example. (laughs) Yeah, that's fine. Let's say like, I think now like, oh, now I need to go eat bags and bags of like dried blueberries. I don't know. Maybe like in my head, I'm like, oh, like, well, that's what I need to go and do now. But then what if it actually turns out like, well, actually the whole reason why, you know, the study even showed, you know, the, the power of blueberries is because, well, it's actually because it's the fresh blueberries, right? 
not like the blueberries that's been like dried, sitting on a shelf for three years, <laughs> right? Um, you know, then it's that actually the way, the how of, of the way the blueberry is prepared or maybe cooked or like not cooked or whatever, right? Like that actually has way more impact than the fact that you just know the blueberries are important. Yep. And that's a fantastic so, point. Yeah. Like, I feel like it's the same thing that's happening with, you know, UX and design at companies. They're like, oh, we know this is important. Let's make sure we have it. But, but so they're like, okay, let's collect as much as possible or, or hire as much as possible or whatever, have as many roles as possible. Um, you know, throw people into the mix, but then they don't realize like, oh wait, but it's the how, right? That yep. that really makes the difference. Exactly. And it goes back to what you were saying earlier. And I know we're, we're about to run out of time. Yeah, the, the whole UX maturity thing, people see these other companies. Oh, these companies did great. Oh, Coca-Cola, they did great. Oh, Honeywell, they did great. Oh, I want to be on the same list with them from that DMI report that came out. But you never <laughs> found out, like you said, how did they achieve it? How did they, not just how did they staff, how did they let people do what they did? Did they empower? They hired people, but did they empower? There are so many unempowered UX professionals today that are occupying space mm-hmm. and they have nothing to show for it. And then the company has nothing to show for it. And then right. somebody ends up questioning, we have all these UX people and we're not getting anything done. What's up with that? Well, because it be because you're not allowing them to do what you hired them to do. Right. And, and it's not until the company, the people at the UXers at Coca-Cola and those other companies on that D- Design Management Institute report were allowed to do their jobs. And, and, and there's a lot of bright people in UX. And, and we talk to people all over the world. I know you talk to a lot of people. I talk to a lot of people. And there's a huge, huge chunk of us that are not getting the freedom or the support, the autonomy to to be able to do what it is that we know that we can do. And then people are asking us to make cross-country trips with square wheels on a vehicle. And, and, and it's just, it's very difficult. You can get there, you know, I'll see you in a few months. <laughs> You're trying to drive with square wheels. Can you imagine how long that would actually more take? Like, more like a few decades. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but that but that's just the reality of it. So these are the challenges. We love what we do. Uh, but, and I said, we talk about these kinds of things all the time. We can't just talk about the work. We need to talk about what goes into the work because th- these are the things that people are going to run into those the walls that Karen talked about mm-hmm. earlier. We're going to run into the walls and if more people don't start talking about how to manage the wall, when you get there, you're going to be frustrated. You need to be empowered from a discipline perspective. This happens outside of your work. We're trying to empower you, listener out there, that when you run into those walls, you need to tap into this resource, that resource. You need to consider these things, A, B, C, D, and E. You need to look at how you're managing things. You need to look at what your options are. And you need to have multiple options because you can't always do the best thing because your company is not going to allow you to do it mm-hmm. <laughs> quite simply. So it's a challenge to operate in the UX today. It's a beautiful thing. It's a lovely thing. I love the discipline. I wouldn't, I wouldn't change a thing if I had to go and do this all over again. I wouldn't change a thing. But it, we need to have strategies for how we're going to pursue our, 
our careers because we, you, you're not going to make progress in UX by osmosis and you're surely not going to bring value to your organizations by osmosis either. So, yeah, but we're, I know we're out of time. I know Karen has to go. Yeah. I want to respect her time. Thank you again. Always love the conversation. Every time we get to talk, it might just be a chat yeah. in LinkedIn or we're at the <laughs> UX chit chat or whatever it is. I always love taking the time to speak with you and you, you, you taking the time out of your schedule to speak to me. I get enriched. It's therapeutic for UXers to speak to one another for those of you who did not know that. So yes. Oh yeah, you. totally. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. This is so cathartic. <laughs> so thank you to everybody for listening to us. <laughs> have yes. our own little therapy session here. What closing words do you have for us today, Karen? Well, actually, you know, I wanted to say maybe for next time, I would love to talk about, um, cause it's something that I'd also been talking with, um, Debbie Levitt about is this concept of like, well, where is the chief experience officer? Yes. And, um, you know, I was lucky that I had that as a title <laughs> when I was working at, um, a SaaS startup. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I got, I feel like I got a glimpse into what that could look like, you know, for, for larger enterprises. Um, so I would love to explore that topic some more. Cause again, you know, from like a leadership standpoint, it really does, you know, there is a top down and a bottom up, right. Effect, right. Interaction effect. Right. Um, and um, it really does feel like it's high, I don't know, high time or something, right. Like for, for us to dig into that a little bit more. Absolutely. Absolutely. I know I've seen a couple, but it's not, they don't exist in mass. And and I hope it happens, but I also hope it doesn't happen the same way that a lot of UX leadership roles have gone today because most of those positions are filled by former creative directors, former art directors, not people who actually know, respect, Mm -hmm. or embrace UX. Uh, I even know of a situation where a person was teaching UX and he would tell people in his class that he didn't like UX, he didn't respect UX, but he was teaching the class. You really think those students got anything out of that? And and so there's a lot of a lot of companies are doing the same exact thing. I had somebody walk out on an interview that I was at once, um, maybe maybe a year ago. Uh, the person, a, a former art director, and, and somebody had told me we need you in here because we need to write the ship because our UX is going off the rails. We need somebody like you. I was told that, but then when she saw me, it's like, get this guy out of here. Not because I didn't bring value, but because I was going to expose her. As soon as I started talking, she was done. She was masquerading. She was Peter principling in it, possibly. Uh, Definitely faking it till she made it, Mm -hmm. for sure. And we can't afford that today in UX. We're at a a crossroads. Right. uh, In UX today, and we need to, we need to, all of these people running the uh, TikTok and YouTube, creating all these videos and spreading all this pro- false propaganda about UX is damaging the discipline. And we're calling for it. It needs to stop. And more people are starting to stand up. More people are starting to recognize it. And, and so I hope that in conjunction with exactly what Karen mentioned, we need CXOs, but we need them to be the right people. Matter of fact, the how, uh, the how of the what <laughs> needs to be right. Yes, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Not just, not just, the, okay, we have the what, but yes. no, like. Or they say yeah. de- decorating your seats with UX people 
but but uh, you know you, you can do the wrong. You can have dissolving swimming trunks too. They, I've heard about that. You know, <laughs> you can have them on the trunks, but maybe they don't stand the test. As soon as the water right. hits them, I've seen those jokes on TikTok as well. So, <laughs> but we we're we're just happy to be able to share this kind of these kinds of exhortations, if you will, enlightenment. So we're we're done. We're we uh, we're out of time today folks and and love the convo as always but thanks folks for taking the time to tune in to listen to us today and we hope you enjoyed it and tell your friends about it get the word out let's get the word out let's let truth go viral for a change instead of all this other (laughs) that's out here we hope you enjoy it that much that you will share it with your your ux peeps and communities but that's all the time we have for today So signing off now, this is Darren Hood, the host of The World of UX. Until next time, happy UXing, everybody. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit cxofm.org for more resources.